Welcome, travelers, to this fascinating intellectual journey as we delve into the captivating lives of our scientists and their stories, showcasing a myriad of scientific endeavors and mysteries, the steps along the way, and the significance of their victories. This is Around the World in 80 Discoveries. Born in the Baltic country of Latvia, Carlos is currently doing his PhD in physical chemistry at the renowned Dodwall Center for Photonic and Quantum Technologies at the University of Otago. As a physical chemist, he is not involved in the production of chemical compounds, rather, his job is to analyze their properties. His main research focus and area of expertise are pharmaceuticals. Next time you reach into your medicine cabinet, take a moment to observe that tablet or capsule. Only a small fragment of what you're holding actually contains the active ingredient that will treat and target your condition. The remaining majority of the material is called the excipient. This is a substance that is produced alongside the active ingredient and its purpose is multifunctional. It helps stabilize the active ingredient over long periods of time to ensure a suitable shelf life. And it also confers therapeutic properties like enabling the absorption of the active ingredient or enhancing its solubility in our system. Different chemical compounds can be used as excipients and the choice and combination will impact the final product in terms of its appearance, size and flavor. Carlos employs a technique called low-frequency Raman spectroscopy, which uses lasers of visible light to probe the physical chemical properties of a range of pharmaceuticals. He analyzes the amount of light that is scattered when it has interacted with the samples, enabling him to evaluate whether the drug composition is fit for human consumption. This is Carlos. Carlos, it's great to meet you. So where are you from? I'm originally from Latvia. That's probably the furthest you can go in terms of the distance, almost, right? Yep. Tell us something about Latvia that you really miss. Uh, oh, well, I miss a lot of things about Latvia. So it's a relatively very small country. So as probably most of you know, it's located in northern part of Eastern Europe. Its population is about 2 million, so we're not a lot of us here. and. As I've been told, I'm probably one of the only students here from Latvia in Otago, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, we are very keen sports fans, so hockey is not something is very popular here, and back home it's everything. <laughs> and if you could think of one dish from home that you could gobble up right now, what would it be? Oh, that's an excellent question. Uh, we are not very fancy, we're like potato meat kind of people, but there is a pearl barley stew with like cook bacon this this is like very simple but super tasty so tell us a little bit more about yourself um you know i'm like kind of a typical guy <laughs> i don't know i uh, like outdoors a lot i'm very i like exploration that's why i guess i like chemistry so much because it's a, like a sense of discovery and that kind of always appealed to me so from early age i was interested in all kind of things i really just wanted to know how things work so i kind of had my eyes set I'm going to be a chemist uh, from very early age, I would say, like when I was like maybe 14 or 15, which is quite crazy. Mm -hmm. 
there have been slight changes in where I ended up actually in chemistry itself, but all in all, kind of my pathway was, has been quite clear so far. So I'm assuming you studied chemistry at bachelor's degree? Yes, so I did my undergrad and my master's studies back home. So I graduated with a distinction, and then I was not certain. So I kind of knew what I want to do, but not exactly. So I kind of found an opportunity to gain research experience abroad. So I applied to very similar scholarship as it is Fulbright scholarship. So it allowed me to gain basically research experience in the United States. And I spent a wonderful year at University of Minnesota, which kind of then solidified what I exactly want to do. And that kind of led me to coming here. So what was it that you were doing in the University of Minnesota? Oh, yeah. So I, from the basis, I'm a physical chemist. So I'm not the person who you really associate with the kind of chemistry I know. I'm not really the one who makes the compounds. I'm more, I'm more of a person who actually analyzes them in more in, like detail. And I'm specifically interested in uh, pharmaceuticals, which are mostly small organic molecules. So there's a large diversity of what you can make and uh, how things can be altered to change their physical chemical properties. So that's kind of my main interest. So in, um, at the University of Minnesota, I specialized in analyzing something called amorphous materials. So if you think about things, so everything has more or less an order, so those would be crystalline compounds. But if you make something disordered, like let's say glass, so these compounds or these materials can have very unique properties which could be very beneficial for pharmaceutical industry. So you can increase the bioavailability because of the solubility inc um, increase and so on. So um, there's like a lot of different aspects you can kind of investigate there. So it's basically focused on how you can tailor pharmaceuticals so that they're um, viable for human consumption. Yeah, exactly. So you kind of modify their properties in one way is their state. So if you make something amorphous, so we increase their kind of potential properties in one way, but we need to also make sure because every, everything wants to go back to the ordered state. So we want to make sure that this is actually stable. So we need to stabilize it with a lot of different excipients, try to find strategies which actually make it sustainable but because pharmaceuticals, when you buy from the counter, if you look at the expiration date, they actually need to be usable for at least a few years. Mm -hmm. So th there needs to be significant amount of time where they actually don't change at all because not only can be dangerous because any changes can manifest in different kind of behavior but it also can cause any other different complications as well so it needs to be very nicely controlled and what was the jumping step to come here to New Zealand what's your project about here um, so I mainly specialized um, before I mainly specialized on diffractom uh, diffractom Sorry. It's a mouthful, it sounds yeah, like it. it. Is. <laughs> so X-ray methods, let's call it that. So I used basically X-ray radiation to kind of investigate the properties of the materials, which are typically non-destructive methods as well. And here I'm using essentially also light, just with kind of more um, lower energy. So if you look at the X-rays, those are high energy. So that's high energy light. Here we are using essentially visible light lasers, mo mainly to probe sort of sort of these kind of properties. So any kind of material can have interaction with light. And then we can see, based on the pro properties of the material, they will change, and therefore we can distinguish different things and see how it changes over time and so, so forth. Interesting. Yeah. So before I walked in here, yeah. 
this is a laser lab. Is there any requirements like in terms of safety or hazards that we should take into consideration? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So currently, uh, thankfully, this is not operational. Otherwise, we will need to wear um, very thick and heavy safety goggles because these lasers actually can harm your eyes quite seriously. So the safety precaution is really a big concern here. So whoever works with, the, with this kind of equipment, and this is equipment which you can't find, I mean, there are obviously places in the world, but this is definitely a state-of-the-art laser lab, which we are very proud of. And uh, this definitely requires a lot of training and experience to actually be comfortable working here. And state-of-the-art it is. As I walked in here, I was absolutely amazed with the setup that we have here. We're going to have Carlos walk us through a little bit about what this apparatus actually does. Uh, yeah, so this specific lab, we are currently here. Um, these are pulse lasers, which I don't personally use that much, uh, or almost at all, but these can be helpful to probe um, sort of properties which can be manifested on a very short uh, scale. Let's say you, um, you, I think everyone has seen uh, either watches or some kind of uh, t-shirts where you have them glow during the night. So the idea is very same. So uh, when you shine a light or energy on the molecule, so it can go to the excited state, so it can absorb this energy and then can later release it. And sometimes this release can be very, very quick. So for that, you need very short pulse lasers to kind of probe these properties because these processes are very quick. And these are very important for something called molecular electronics. So when you want to develop a better solar cells, for example, that's a large part of the research is actually going on, so a lot of my colleagues are working on that. So this particular setup helps with actually understanding properties of potentially new or better materials for such applications. Wow, and what part exactly of the molecule is the one that gets excited to emit the light? So it depends. So there are um, sort of these uh, functional groups or bases which can um, kind of manifest or absorb this energy. And this kind of interaction in terms of uh, releasing the energy also can have different behaviors. So there can be a metal involved, there can be um, different kind of pipe eye stacking. I'm not going to go <laughs> into maybe too much chemistry <laughs> details because this might uh, become a little bit complicated. But yeah, there are many ways how light can be both absorbed and released from the molecule. Interesting. Yes. Do you want to walk us through a little bit about what we have in front of us? Uh, yeah, sure. So these two are two different lasers. So we have basically a lot of different optics in front of them, which allow us to guide the laser light to our sample, which is located over here. And we have also a lot of different control to ma manipulate not only the power of the laser, uh, but also the strength, uh, because based on the power, so in a lot of cases, you are kind of trying to find a balance between how much light or energy you can actually shoot at your sample before it actually literally explodes. So, mm -hmm. there, <laughs> so uh, there need, because the more energy you essentially um, give to the sample, the, the better signal you can get in regard. So sometimes it's like, it can be, it can be a difference between seeing s a signal and not. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of intricacies which come into experimental design when you're testing these out. Mm -hmm. So tying back to what you were mentioning before, in this case, the sample would be something like a drug that you were testing the properties of. So in this case, like I mentioned, this is not specifically an uh, instrumental setup I would use. You could technically use this for, for drugs, but typically these are sort of metal organic 
kind of compounds or metal, metal complexes, which are the most typical um, kind of object, which, are, which is kind of analyzed in these kind of situations. Interesting. To kind of give a bit of a descriptive of what I see in front of me, we have two lasers. These are the lasers. They kind of look uh, like um, a Star Wars <laughs> gun. Uh, labeled blue and green, is this that the, they emit that type of uh, visible light? Uh, yeah, so essentially, exactly. So, and also, uh, there are like slight boxes in front which essentially re can reduce the wavelength. So, we can uh, actually half the wavelength of the laser to sort of manipulate what kind of wavelength is coming out of them. But, yeah, essentially, what, what's written on them, that's exactly what's coming out. And in front of the lasers, we see a series of what looks like camera lenses and some smaller glass lenses. Yeah, so uh, most of these are just mirrors. So there are essentially, if you go around, sorry, uh, if you go around, yeah, so these, most of these are mirrors. There are a few polarizers here, which not only allows us to, like I mentioned before, manipulate the power which actually comes through them, but also polarizes the light, so it's oriented in certain direction. So that can sometimes be important when you look at the certain properties of the response. And yeah, that's basically it. So it's essentially guiding the light to the sample and then the scattered light. So the light can interact with material in different ways. So it can be reflected, absorbed, scattered, and so forth. So in this particular kind of experimental setup, we are looking at this light which is scattered and most of the the most of the interest lies in the scatter light, which is different to the one which is irradiated. So the most of the energy, which is essentially, if you look at the laser, so everyone has played with lasers when they've been <laughs> when they've been kids, or maybe now, <laughs> I don't know. So um, so the most of the light, which you, when you shine on some kind of material, it's going to be of the same wavelength, which we call Rayleigh scattering. So it's 99.99, a lot of uh, <laughs> percentages. So only very small amount of light actually is of a different wavelength. So it can be a higher, I mean, I'm sorry, not wavelength, but of energy, which is related to wavelength. Mm -hmm. And um, it can be sort of either higher or lower. And we can see these responses uh, with this kind of setup. So essentially the light travels to the sample, it's backscattered, and it's collected in something called uh, CCD. So we have essentially a detector, like a TV screen where the scattered um, where the scattered light is actually collected and then we can transmit the scattered light to the computer screen and see what actually the signal is. And it would be unique for each uh, particular molecule. And I'm assuming there'll be differences in whether the light has been absorbed, reflected, or refracted in the way that the readings show up on the yeah, computer. Yeah, so uh, like I said, each different technique which we are using in these labs, so this specific one is like... Um, typically time-resolved uh, Raman spectroscopy. Uh, we also, there are also techniques like infrared spectroscopy, which specifically focus on the light absorption, um, which also can give a different information. So there's a lot of different ways how you can manipulate the um, kind of the interaction between the light and the material to your benefit, to kind of mm -hmm. extract different kind of information which can be complementary to each other. Mm -hmm. And is that what the term spectroscopy defines? Uh, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so we can kind of use what, I, uh, like, like I said, you can use x-rays, you can use visible light, you can use um, near um, um, infrared uh, sort of light. So there's a lot of different 
um, kind of ranges in terms of what kind of um, sort of energy you can add or expose the sample to to gain a variety of different information. Now, I have this idea that light travels super fast. Yes. So I'm assuming one run of this experiment would be pretty fast. Um, yes and no. <laughs> so yes, you are absolutely right. Uh, light do, does travel very fast. Uh, but to actually gain the signal, so I, like I said before, so with um, these kind of setups, obviously we're looking at the nanosecond scale measurements. So these are really, really quick. But for typical, like a standard measurement where you just need sort of the information gained from the sample, typically what you do, you expose the sample for a prolonged time and you kind of accumulate the signal over time so you can kind of better distinguish signal to the background. So um, it, can, it can vary. It depends also what you are actually looking for. If you just want to characterize the sample, typically you, the measurements last from some few seconds to maybe even a few minutes or even hours sometimes because um, depending on the properties, some of the molecules are better at giving the information and some of them are really withholding it and you need to really work hard for getting it through. Mm. And is this research field one that is still, has like a lot of information yet to be discovered? Is it an ongoing thing? Um, I would say so. Like you can re always reinvent the wheel. I would say I'm specifically <laughs> working on something which has been known um, let's say in 60s, 70s, and 80s, people have used particular technique, uh, but because of the advancements of technology, certain things have been uh, made much easier. So there's um, kind of the interest in specific kind of techniques. So I personally specialize in low-frequency Raman spectroscopy, um, which allows to gain certain information about um, kind of the intermolecular vibrations. So meaning the sort of the, the long range, very low energy vibrations within the whole structure or in amorphous materials, just the kind of the interaction between them in long range. So um, with the advancements in technology, it has become much easier to kind of see or gain information for, from the specific kind of interest. Uh, so I, I think it's kind of like a trends in uh, fashion, like they, they just keep com coming back. But I think people always, try to find new ways of applying already existing knowledge for completely new applications. Wow, super interesting. Uh, you mentioned quickly Raman spectroscopy? Yes. <laughs> we are not talking about the noodles here, everyone. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the biggest uh, misconception yet. <laughs> so Raman uh, was an Indian scientist who discovered essentially the, the scattering effect. So like I mentioned before, so there's only a very, very small portion of the light which is scattered at a different kind of energy when you in, when it interacts with the material and we can uh, then use the information gained to characterize a lot of different sort of things typically these are um, essentially what happens is that energy interacts so the molecule is induced so it starts to vibrate in certain ways so each specific functional group um, will kind of give its unique signal at specific range so we can identify whether a compound has let's say an alcohol group or um, it's acid and so forth. And it also gives us a way to identify specific compounds because the combination of these kind of unique vibrations will give kind of fingerprint and that's exactly what it's called. So typically a certain region of the spectra is called the fingerprint region. So you can <laughs> kind of like identify exactly what kind of compound you're looking for.
or looking at. Super interesting. And what about after your PhD? What are your plans after this Ooh. research? So currently I'm sort of halfway through, so I'm in the uh, second part of my second year, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, second, second part of the second year of my PhD. And uh, things been kind of, I've um, been very fortunate to work on very interesting projects, not only in terms of pharmaceuticals, but also kind of try the, so the, the knowledge I've learned or techniques I have kind of picked up. I've um, had the opportunity to apply them on different kind of variety of projects. We're currently, for example, analyzing breast milk. Uh, we have uh, human bone. Uh, we have a lot of different, like my colleagues have analyzed meat. Um, there's like um, Maori textiles. So there's a lot of diff variety of different applications you can use these techniques. Uh, while I do want to specialize uh, in pharmaceuticals, I am still not certain whether I want to stay in academia or maybe try my luck in industry. We'll see. Kind of well, keeping my options open. Yeah. Well, you still have a little bit to go, oh, so yeah. you'll have some time. Can you think of any curious anecdotes that you've experienced while being a researcher? Curious anecdotes? Um, I think, uh, I think when I, whenever I interact, especially with students when they don't know me, because I do, do have very young aesthetic for my age, so they, um, I kind of go sometimes with that, that if, they, if they don't know uh, who I am and uh, I kind of try to surprise them, but maybe I am maybe a genius, but not <laughs> maybe not. Um, anecdotes, um, it's like, um, it's kind of hard to say at the top of my head. You know, like, um, like we kind of try to like, it, it's, it's not like we are trying to keep it all serious here, but to a certain extent you kind of need to because although you are working with very interesting and relatively fun things, you also need to be very mindful of all the, the surroundings because you are not only responsible from, like, for all your own like, well-being, but also whoever is around you. So is this some of the advice that you would give future scientists to have fun but also be mindful? Oh, definitely. But I also feel that you also need to have, uh, like, if you're not passionate about something you do, because being a scientist is a very hard work. Like, um, you need your time management skills are definitely put to the test. Um, a lot of people also don't think that maybe um, it's more or less a, a scientist is just locked in a room and does it all thing. But it's actually a very much team effort. So you need to have uh, social skills. Mm -hmm. So you need to know how to communicate to people because essentially science is conveyed through people. So there's a lot of things scientists need to do which maybe not, which are not obvious at the first glance. Obviously you need to know what you're doing. You need to uh, kind of be able to pick up things fast because typically even if you have learned something, you might need to apply it in a completely different way and you need to adapt, kind of adjust and adapt. So yeah, like if, if someone's passionate enough and they know what they're going after and I, I think it's so much easier to kind of put up with like, like a more um, drawbacks, which come also obviously with the research work. Can you give us some examples, any challenges that you've experienced? Oh, there's like daily. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you always need to think on your feet um, because like I mentioned, so all of pretty much the, ex most of the experiments which I am working with. So we have essentially components uh, for the instruments put out 
outside the box. So we can manipulate them very much, much more easily so we can adapt things and make experimental setups which would be otherwise impossible or would, would be very expensive. So if there is a problem, you need to think how to resolve it. And not obviously it doesn't always work, but this is very rewarding what it does. So you need to really think on your toes all the time. Excellent. And you've been in New Zealand for how long now? Like a year and a half, a little bit over a year and a half. So it's been amazing. Like I'm uh, very much an outdoorsy person. Uh, so I've been like really um, kind of fascinated with the nature and the friendliness of the people and uh, the fact that they are very interesting. So when I'm saying, when I say to them that I'm from Latvia, they're like, oh, this is amazing. Like this is like very interesting. And it's like really like super cool to me. Any one particular place that you would highlight? Oh, I so over Christmas instead of going home, we actually a bunch of us, um, me and my friends, spent wonderful time up in Nelson. It's amazing, like Takaka, and all that region is just. I'm I'm just eager to go back <laughs> several times. It's just like amazing time. Amazing. Well, Carlos, I thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thank you so Anytime. much for your story. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Around the World in 80 Discoveries. Tune in Saturdays at 2.30 p.m. on ORFM or stream online at or.org.nz.